everybody. You're listening to The Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 543, the Premier League Tides of Turf. To the Big Chill Podcast. I'm Frank. Turns out with Eddie. Eddie, how's it going? How's your weekend? Yeah, it was eventful, obviously. Had the Masters, had some good Premier League action, had two Blackburn matches in the space of four days. So it's been uh, eventful, but enjoyable. <laughs> the two Blackburn matches in four days was enjoyable? Well, so we're recording this on Monday. They had the midday kickoff today and drew two all with Huddersfield that came back from two nil down it was the second half performance was excellent and overall I would say it's one of the most dominant Blackburn performances I've seen but they just managed to get themselves I mean you know got to the end there was a moment at which Huddersfield had two touches in the Blackburn box and scored two goals and you know sometimes you just don't have the rub of the green but it was enjoyable. And as I said, I, you know, we spoke about it a few weeks ago, this Blackburn team, this season, even if it ends up being an unsuccessful one from a promotion standpoint, I've enjoyed watching them. And sometimes as a, as a supporter, that's all you can ask for. They've actually, they've made this year of my life better. And that I cannot always say that about the teams and individuals who I get emotionally invested in. Well, we'll have to wait and see in the next few weeks how this turns out and we'll, we'll obviously get into an update as we get closer because i'm sure i'm sure they're not going to coast into a uh, playoff run i mean statistically they have the hardest remaining matches of any team in the championship so it's not looking they've got a small gap to seventh but you'd say if things go to form they will not be making the playoffs but i remain hopeful but i am prepared for disappointment i guess we should though go into the premier league because we'll go back to the fact that i've been asking you two things all year and one of your predictions seemed to uh the outcome seemed to favor your prediction while the other one seems to uh about ready to knock your prediction out of the water so which one would you want to start with (laughs) Look, if we're going to do, are we really doing the Holland update on a date? Because yeah, you got to remember, welcome, obviously, to our new listeners. I feel like I have to clarify every time. I was never a Holland doubter. It's just, was he going to break the single season goal scoring record? I thought probably not. And my reasons for it were, I've said it a million times. I thought he would probably miss some time due to injury. I thought City probably wouldn't be in a title race. And so at this stage of the season, he might even be rested for Premier League matches. Obviously, neither of those things have transpired. But So I think we can move on from that. So you were wrong on two other predictions as well. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) That he'd get injured and that they'd be uh, in cruise control. (laughs) I would never predict that he'd get injured, but... I mean, his the history of his career would, you know, you expect him to miss some matches. And he's missed a few, but not enough from, you know, I say not enough. I don't want him to miss any. But the other thing, the more, the more important thing is yes. you've asked me throughout the season who will win the title. And I think the pendulum has firmly 
shifted in Manchester City's favour. I would be genuinely surprised from this position now if Arsenal in the Premier League. That felt like the this is the weekend we will look back and Easter weekend is the weekend <laughs> that Arsenal lost the Premier League. Yeah, they couldn't quite finish their uh, Easter egg hunt. No, yes, yeah. And and you know that match against Liverpool, one of the best, possibly the best match of the season, one of the best matches in a really long time, just super enjoyable to watch end to end. You know, good football was played, particularly once Liverpool started to get back into it. Arsenal looked like they might run away with it a little bit in the first half, and then once Liverpool got their tails up, it really turned into a good match. But to be 2-0 up and to drop two points from Arsenal's perspective, it's just kind of inexcusable, even though going to Anfield, not an easy place to go to. You know, on paper, it doesn't look like that bad of a result, but contextually, it's not great. And I mean, they required a couple of great saves at the end to even escape with that one point. Yeah, and that that was kind of what I was going to say as a takeaway is you can get a draw at Anfield and feel good about it. Not great, but you can walk out of there feeling good. I do not think they walked out of there at all feeling comfortable or confident they were hanging on towards the end of that match. And there was, a, oh, yeah, right, no. there was a few really nice saves and a lot, lot more opportunities in the last 30 for Liverpool than there were for Arsenal. Oh, if there had been five more minutes, Liverpool win that match. And I mean, the Kanate miss at the end, I mean, it's, it's a great save. It's a combination of a miss and a save, but to not be able to bundle a ball in from a yard out is... You know, you put more blame on the attacking player in that instance than you give credit to the goalkeeper. Um, but, you know, the Ramsdale save from the deflected shot just before that was impressive. And and look, who knows? Maybe, maybe I will be wrong, and maybe you'll look back on those saves and think those were the moments that won Arsenal the Premier League. It's just... That one point. Yeah, I mean, cracks have been... We've discussed it on previous episodes. Cracks have been showing for them over the course of the last few weeks, and they are becoming wider and wider. And there's they just look vulnerable. Whereas City, just as we've seen from City in years past, are having it's the reverse. It's the snowball effect that's happening with City as the season comes towards an end, and they've got all this momentum, and they look like this unstoppable freight train, and. You look at City now, I can't see where they're dropping points. And whereas you look at the Arsenal and you kind of think, where where do I feel totally certain when we're not dealing with teams right at the bottom of the table? Where am I totally certain that they'll pick up three points? And that seems weird to say because they've obviously been winning virtually all of their matches. So I know that the form table doesn't show as if they're struggling. It's just every match with a, with a couple of exceptions – you know, they concede a lot of goals. They kind of have these moments in matches where the match seems to be in the balance, even if they go on to win. And yeah, I just don't feel confident in them. And the interesting thing from, I'm sure every Arsenal fan will say, tell you right now, regardless of what happens in the title race, that this season will have been a success. But I think City are potentially 16 
matches away from the treble, you know, winning the Premier League, Champions League, FA Cup. If they do that, no one will remember that Arsenal were the feisty team in the Premier League title race for 80, 90, 95, 99% of the season. In the same way that when we, you know, a couple of years from now, no one will remember just how close Liverpool went to winning the Premier League on a couple of occasions. It will just be looking through the history books and seeing City won the Premier League. And, you know, that's the thing that would scare me a little bit as an Arsenal fan is you might get so close and kind of get nothing from it. And you then look at what's happened to Liverpool over the course of this season. And if I were an Arsenal supporter, yes, they've got a lot of young, talented players. They're not, you can't compare their situation in their squad to what's going on at Anfield at the moment. But part of me would think it's almost, you see how close Liverpool were last season. And then now they're not even going to be in the top four. And I could see that happening with Arsenal next season as well. Because they've had, the stars have aligned for them to a certain degree in terms of their results, in terms of players being in perfect form, not having too many injuries. They don't have Champions League football, so they don't have that full burden of European fixtures that they will then have next season. You know, if they were going to have this magical run, it was going to be this year. And next year, they could just come back to earth with a bang. Yeah, and you know, in terms of remaining matches, I, I think you know you said it. Arsenal definitely have the tougher uh, schedule and fixtures, and particularly, you know, their next two matches they should win. I mean, if they are going to finish atop, they have to win. They have to get six from their next two. But then they have City on April twenty sixth, which obviously that match will decide most of this. I think going forward, but you have City, then followed by Chelsea, Newcastle, and Brighton. So that those are not easy matches at all. And you look at the reverse, City have, you know, besides Arsenal, they have Chelsea, and that's a that's a question mark. Like are you know, are they a scary team to play right now? I, I don't know. But other than that, you know, you're looking at maybe like Fulham. You know, like it's not, it it it's not very difficult for City right now. Yeah, they they've got the much better running. Admittedly, yeah. you do have to throw in, they've got the Champions League to deal with. Yep. You know, so they're they're playing Bayern Munich tomorrow, and they they've got additional fixtures. They will have, you know, there is some as big as their squad is that will have an impact on them, and they just yeah. have more more balls in the air to handle. But yeah, yeah they especially I have, mean. You have the looking at their schedule. You have you have uh, Champions League the nineteenth, FA Cup the twenty second, and then Arsenal the twenty sixth. So you're going to have three matches in the span of a week there. Which I agree. You hopefully with you know, with Sheffield they can in the FA Cup they can put some of their yeah Sheffield United yeah the reserves yeah, I mean, in. But no, no, that, that will be their B team against Sheffield yeah. United in the FA Cup semi final. And their B team will be far too good for Sheffield United. And like, let's be honest, of all the competitions that they're in, they'll happily not win the FA Cup. There, there's no doubt about that. So uh, I'm not, you know, that is the one that they'll punt if they have to. But yeah, that's. I don't think they're going to be 
too concerned about having to play an FA Cup semi semifinal around when they have to play Arsenal. That's you know that may as well be treated like a friendly match almost. And the odds, I guess, are in your favor, eh? They have now switched, and uh, City is favored to win the league. Slightly. Yeah, which they, yeah, they should be. And again, look, you know, if Arsenal beat them, then you know suddenly the everything changes, and and weird things can happen. And as we have discussed on previous episodes, as much as I say the City snowball effect and what we've seen from them in recent years, it history prior to this whole period of dominance from city and Liverpool history would tell you that down like in the final few matches of the premier league, everyone slips up. So it wouldn't stun me if there's somewhere city drop points where you didn't expect them to, they've dropped points in unexpected places over the course of this season already. But you just think with the end in sight that they'll just have too much for pretty much everyone they play. They look so good at the moment. They're peaking at the right time. And yeah, you know, the, that's in all sports, peaking at the right moment is one of the best things that can happen to you. You know, you can, no one cares who the best team is in week eight of the NFL, you know, and this is the, this is the moment for City when they seem to be playing some of the best, their best football of the season. And on City, speaking of peaking right now, Kevin De Bruyne got his hundredth assist. Uh, which was the fastest in Premier League history to get 100 assists. I was going to have this be my trivia question, but I feel like you probably already know who the other four players over 100 assists are. I don't, actually. I, and oh, I, wow. I think Okay, so I, he is the fifth. I think I, could, I think I might struggle with this one, to be honest with you. Wow, okay, all right. Now I'm I know excited. I've done... <laughs> I've done well in quizzes recently, but I, I, if I try to think off the top of my head which players are candidates for 100 assists, I'll, I'll I thought for Ryan. sure you had seen this. No, no. I'll throw Ryan Giggs in. Yes. Ryan Giggs leads uh, his 162 assists in the Premier League. That's the record. Yeah, I mean, just longevity makes yes. that one an easy selection. Um, shoot. Who else am I going to include? Steven Gerrard? No. No. Give me, give me the remainder of the names then, because I really don't think I'm going to be able to play Lampard, Rooney, and Fabregas. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, one of the all-time Premier League greats and uh, kind of underappreciated at times, it has to be said. I do think because of his lack of international success, I do think there's part of Kevin De Bruyne's career where he doesn't necessarily get the recognition that he always deserves. And I actually think it's one of the interesting elements of City as a whole. Uh, and they get credit because they kind of play really as a unit. But you almost, the individuals kind of get, until at least maybe this Holland season is the exception, but the, the individuals kind of get lost in the team success. There's a lot of squad rotation at times, and they've got a lot of really good players. But... You know, when you when you kind of think about this city dynasty that we're probably in the midst of, you know, most of it gets kind of goes down to the the unit. Whereas, you know, you think of a lot of other great teams in the history of football. You know, like the Barcelona period recently, right, was the Messi period. 
and you know the Cristiano Ronaldo's Real Madrid teams and City it's just sort of well there's a lot of good players and Aguero was important at times Vincent Company was important at times Kevin De Bruyne has been super important but it's it's interesting they've never they don't have that kind of star man Holland might change that if he hangs around for long enough but I guess the other really big talking point from the Premier League this weekend from that Liverpool uh, Arsenal match. We obviously spoke uh, a couple of times about Mitrovic and the general treatment of officials. And the roles were slightly reversed in that match where you had uh, linesmen appearing to elbow Robertson in the face. Uh, the linesman has now been suspended pending investigation. Uh, it's kind of, I think, football community is pretty divided. I'm of the opinion that I just think officials get so poorly treated that I don't blame them for elbowing someone in the face. In the face. It doesn't bother me at all. And I find in particular Robertson to be particularly, like, I find, I think he's very mouthy and he's one of those players who's often right around the official and probably saying things in ways that cannot be repeated on television. So I kind of feel like he deserves it. And I also wasn't super impressed by his reaction to it. Like, it's not as if he got some haymaker from Lennox Lewis, right? So I get that the linesman has to be suspended, but I hope that this doesn't cause any long-term issues for his career because I kind of get where he's coming from. It's tough. I mean... I you're you're an official like you have to be able to like you have to be the better person i think in all situations unless it's like a life or death situation and you're being attacked and defending for your life then yes but i think you always have to rise above how petty a player can be so i don't i, I don't love it i i think it, it was highly highly exaggerated i will say yeah. that but I, I don't I don't love it. <laughs> I don't think as an Unless official I... you should ever be, you know, pushing someone away or shut. Like it's tough because I guess officials do kind of you know make a push a player away when they're talking, but they're kind of just putting their hands out there. They're not actively trying to push them. So it's it, it looked it was made to look worse than it was. I'm not. I certainly don't love it. I'm not condoning it. I don't want the you know, Premier League Referees Association to kind of say this is the standard of behavior we expect now. But, you know, given the level of abuse that they receive and just the way people crowd around them, I'm not going to, I don't think you should have the, you know, he should be locked up for, I'm sure he instantly regretted it. But, you know, I can kind of get you getting a little crowded by someone who's yapping on your shoulder and you just kind of, throw the elbow back there and you're not putting too much thought into it. And unfortunately, Robertson's not the tallest guy in the world. So that throwback of the elbow goes towards the face. You know, if it's yeah. been Virgil van Dyke, it goes in his chest and it's probably not even a, a story really. But, you know, I, I don't think it was malicious. Like, I don't think he thought I'm going to knock Andy Robertson out right now. But yeah, I, I don't either. But I also, the elbow is always a bad choice. For some reason, I think the elbow to me is a more aggressive act 
than if you're just pushing someone. Like if you're pushing someone with your hand, it's kind of like a get out of here. But an elbow is kind of like when you want to give someone a business a little bit, you give them a little bit of an elbow. It's it's a more yeah. of like I think an aggressive uh, oh, yeah. maneuver. So yeah, that's 100%. that's what really I think hurts him at the end. Yeah, no, if it had just been a push. Yeah, no again, official should ever be been... trying to elbow someone or like kick no, someone. And, and... You know, like those are those are more like fight maneuvers. Yeah, and I mean maybe that's our way too. You know, we rarely talk about the NBA. But one of the big stories out of this weekend was Rudy Gobert, the center for the Minnesota Timberwolves. They're calling it a punch towards his teammate uh, during a timeout. I think it's a a strong push to the shoulder. I think punches. Uh, I don't know how you call that a punch necessarily. No, uh, see, still, you're not reading. This is this is the NBA, Eddie. In NBA eyes, that is like a haymaker. That is a Mike Tyson knockout haymaker in the NBA. In the NBA eyes, you're not wrong. And <laughs> again, a good good opportunity to say, you know, I know we've had some new listeners come on board as a result of some of the interviews we've done recently. Do follow us on Twitter and Instagram. I had a little bit of a discussion about the Rudy Gobert uh, incident, and I accepted to call it an NBA punch. I think that's the truest description of what it is because fundamentally he does clearly go for the for the shoulder and I don't think people I've never seen someone try and punch someone in the shoulder. Hey, as did an you ever, aggressive did you ever try and take a jump shot with a bum shoulder? He was going for it. <laughs> he was trying to ruin his career. That's a career but ender. It will be. Obviously that was the final game of the regular season. The Minnesota Timberwolves have a play-in game. So, you know, one game winner takes all to try and get into the playoffs against the LA Lakers tomorrow. It will be interesting to see then how they handle the Rudy Gobert situation. I think under any other circumstances, he's suspended by the team. But now do you kind of limit yourselves? He's not, you know, he's an important player for them. Do you go into a playoff game and say, well, we're not going to let you play. This might hurt us but we have to enforce team rules here. Yeah, it's always a tough one too because I think about in these situations when teams are practicing and especially the NFL is a prime example. There are a lot of scuffles amongst teammates during practice. And I guess the difference here is you're supposed to be on the same team. You know, you're not going against each other in a game. But I mean, they're big personalities and, you know, everyone wants to be the hero and, and do their part. And sometimes people think they aren't doing enough, you know? And, and so I don't see it more than athletes having high emotions and low uh, inability to like con- hold in those emotions, yeah. you know, like I, I, yeah, yeah. I, I don't, I don't see it as that egregious of an act. No, I, I'm, I'm, I think I agree with you. And, and I mean, you're right. Like, look, one of the most famous stories from the NBA in the 1990s was Michael Jordan punching Steve Kerr in, in a practice. <laughs> and, you know, everyone kind of moved on from that. But had that happened in a game, it's probably a more serious incident. But yeah, I, and also people are, again, it wasn't like it was a full-blown fight. I almost judge the reaction of the other players more than I judged the initial, because like, there were more people who almost wanted it to 
evolve into a or devolve, I suppose, into a full-on fight. And for to me, that's almost worse than the initial just a bit of aggression coming out because you got a teammate yeah. and all reports show not talking in necessarily the most polite way to his, you know, colleagues. So yeah, I think again, if I were the Timber Rules, I'd be, you know, get everyone to apologize and I also think if you suspend him, it just becomes a bigger and bigger story. Just get him to play and the news cycle will move on. Yeah. Apologize, chalk it up to high emotions and let's move on. But speaking of, I got a one more NBA related oh. Twitter discussion where on a couple of occasions I have got us into some heated social media debates with people. Usually with, I, I, I don't mean this dismissively, but kind of nobody's, right? Just the internet. Um, <laughs> last night, I got into a several tweet, quite with, heated exchange. With Stephen A. Smith? With former NBA player Andrew Bogut. Oh, who, okay. uh, <laughs> who has turned himself into something of a, um, a, I think he'd call himself an unfiltered, media presence i think people okay. can maybe understand everything that is implied by the usage of the term unfiltered but you know he's a big anti-vaxxer uh he's very critical he seems to be if you follow him on social media i think he thinks them the most pressing concern for modern day society is the risk of trans athletes now i'm not getting i don't want us to wade into those debates but andrew bogut is seriously concerned about the impact this could have on our society. And uh, he and I got into a little bit of a discussion about, you know, I don't know if you saw, but uh, Twitter made the decision to label some uh, media news media outlets, including NPR, NPR and the BBC that receive public funding. They uh, labeled them as government affiliated media. Uh, originally, I think they called them government-sponsored media, and then they've kind of softened the term. And again, we're not a political podcast. I don't love it because I think you blur the lines then between official you know, news outlets that are controlled by a government versus some that receive public funding. I think there's a huge difference there between the two. But yeah, he and I got into a big discussion about this, and uh, I was then attacked, or I say I, the Big Chill podcast, was attacked by his wave of supporters who uh, level of insults that you receive when you're getting attacked by people on Twitter, not, not the most sophisticated when it comes to how they target you. And I, it's a shame because, you know, we once got called the big shill podcast and I actually thought that was at least reasonably clever. No one came up with anything remotely approaching that level of sophistication. I love how I just get lumped into your, Unable, unable to sleep ramblings through Twitter at four in the morning. Now I'm just a, a part of it by being part of this podcast because you no longer have your own Twitter. You just you just tweet on behalf of the Big Chill Podcast. Great. Yeah, it's both of us. And I just use, use vaguely use I or we interchangeably. So yeah, they don't know whether it's me. They don't know whether it's you unless, of course, they... Uh listen to the podcast but uh andrew bogut did say that he hopes that our four listeners enjoy our show so 
that's an endorsement from Andrew Bogut. Nice. I told him he, I told him he should check it out because we receive no government funding, so we're <laughs> just just the kind of media outlet he should want to listen to. That was the worst insult. <laughs> oh no! I mean, there's a lot of snowflakes that were thrown around. Um, some, I mean, most of them got called simp's quite a lot. Uh, told nice. to cry. Um, okay. You know. It's. I, it was a lot. I mean, I. This is a. <laughs> there was a lot of comments that got thrown our way. Uh, just got called stupid. That was pretty common theme. Um, communists. I called that a few times, which was interesting. Don't think I said anything. Didn't really say anything vaguely political, to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, intellectual spastics. That was, I guess, Ooh. kind of a good one. It's a good yeah. pub quiz name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes. Might be. Maybe we should rename the podcast "The Intellectual Spastics." <laughs> like the, uh, but yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was quite interesting. And it's, it's like being on the schoolyard. Like it's very childish name calling, but they, it's as if they feel like they're really coming up with something clever. And uh, I didn't fire back with anything remotely insulting. I'm always very careful in those situations. But uh, eventually Andrew Bogut told us, told me that he would no longer engage with us because of the name calling, but implying that it was us that was doing it. Oh, or me, I guess. Yeah. But yeah. Andrew Bogut, not a fan of the big chill podcast. Well, at least he's no longer engaging. <laughs> well, he is actually, he kept going after that, but. <laughs> oh, did he? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think I'll say this. He probably will never listen to it, but we got him hooked on Twitter. <laughs> I think I can get Andrew Bogut to respond whenever I want now. How many times can you say that about a former NBA champion? Just his phone will see a notification and he'll be right back at us. Wonderful. There you go. We will have to uh, have you relinquish your Twitter, uh, your Twitter ramblings. Hey, at least someone's putting it again. Look again, another great reason to follow us on social media because you will occasionally get to just sit back and watch some interesting Twitter exchanges and maybe with surprising celebrities. I would say he would, if he listened, he'd be all over you for being anti-American, but he is Australian. So I don't know if he's also, maybe this is a common bond you guys could have. Maybe you're both anti-American. It's true. We got to try. Yeah, we should try and find some common ground at yeah, some point. We'll, that could be. We'll it. try and get. Maybe we'll get, try and get him on for a you know a little love session, and so we can become best pals. But, I mean, I guess should we? The big sports story of the weekend was the was the Masters. Obviously, yeah. Should we watched? We witnessed. Uh, Brooks Kepka have one of the biggest meltdowns on a Sunday at a major in recent time. Although, you know, today I, I thought about it. I was trying to think, you know, what have there been worse, you know? And I, I went back and looked and there have been worse actually. And it's, it's interesting. <laughs> it's just from recent history. It's interesting how quickly you forget these, these Sunday meltdowns. You, you had, 2016 at the Masters when Spieth was five shots ahead with nine holes to play and and fell apart. I mean, if we Is just that the one Garcia isolate, one. Um, that was 20, 20 No, I think Garcia. That was that was um, 
uh, the English guy, um, Hatton, not Hatton. Uh, Garcia was there afterwards. Ricky Hatton. I don't think he won the no, no, just no. US Open. <laughs> uh, 2011 at the Masters as well. Uh, McElroy had a four shot lead at the start of the final round and, and blew it. So, you know, you've got in the last 10, 11 years, you've got some big Masters collapses and then there's a few others, Dustin Johnson at the 2015 U.S. Open, um, where he he had a you know a relatively easy putt uh, to win it, and uh, and and didn't. But yeah, it's it was still in the end. I felt I don't want to use the term pathetic, aggressive, like to insult Brooks Kepka because I don't I don't mean it in that sense. But it kind of was pathetic to watch just him. I, I, John Rahm in the end has won comfortably and he played good golf but at the same time John Rahm didn't do anything spectacular to win he just didn't mess up and Brooks Kepka did everything possible to give away his lead and then take himself out of contention and take all pressure off John Rahm down the stretch yeah I mean Rahm shot three under which is a good score but it's not it's nothing crazy. You know, it's not like Spieth and Mickelson who were shooting what, like seven under um, yeah. Mickelson. Who no, there was some lowest round there, ever recorded for someone over 50. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there were low scores on the day. Like it was yeah. the conditions. Conditions were perfect. Yes. There were some tough pin con- positions, but fundamentally like they were birdies to be had. Yeah. So for Kepka to finish what three over on the round, uh, it was and and then you tie it. You kind of had to add in as part of that Sunday experience, him finishing off his round three on Sunday. He wasn't spectacular in that either, so it just made the whole image look wor- look worse. Yeah, and you know we talked off podcast uh, about maybe some of the reasons for this, and you know I kind of said maybe it's because Liv only has three rounds of of golf. They don't do a fourth round, so maybe Kepka got tired. Maybe, but you look at Mickelson, who's, what, 20, 30 years older than him, and he was able to crush it in, in the fourth round, right? Yeah. Like, so, so I, I, but, but again, Kepka has had injuries in the past, so maybe, and he's bigger, and, and I, I know that sounds dumb, but I think, you know, when you are a bigger guy and that extra round of, you know, walking the course and having to play and swing as hard as he swings. Maybe it, maybe that did get to him for the fourth round. I mean, he doesn't think so. He thinks it's the only comment he had was the tremendously slow play, which was an issue and was quite annoying. And I'll give him that. Yeah. But Patrick Rahm Kentley, also had it. Yeah. They both had to deal with it. Patrick Kentley, even though when the group in front, his round took four and a half hours. Yeah. Which is just embarrassingly slow. I mean, did you and see at points Hovland was like playing as Cantley was still walking to the green? There was like two holes yeah. towards the end where Hovland was just like playing shots as who he was, you know, as a t- uh, partner with at the time. I also, you, you had the shots of Rom and Kepka like sitting on a bench waiting to tee off. And I don't know if I've ever seen that in a professional golf tournament before. Like, You'll, you'll occasionally see them standing and waiting for a second. Obviously, there's plenty of moments in a tournament where they have to wait for the, the group in front to advance a bit or on a par three, they have to wait for them to finish up. 
but that doesn't usually extend to a moment where they actually sit down. Like, you know, it's a little bit of standing around a couple of extra practice swings, a couple of exchanges between them to actually, it made it look so amateurish to have them. I, I mean, I don't as stupid as it sounds, but to just see them sitting there like you or I would, if we were out on a playing around and you're like, Oh, the group in front's kind of slow. I guess we'll sit here and eat our sandwiches for a second. You know, like that's, I don't know. It was kind of strange, but yeah, again, he didn't have, because he can't, really blame anything because as you said john rom had to deal with exactly the same conditions that he did i think the three round thing doesn't make too much sense you know it's not like he's been gone from a four round experience for that long the one thing i guess you could say is and i think this is the people have spoken about this being a good weekend for live because there were a number of live players who performed well i don't think it really matters because the players who performed well for from the live golf tour are all recognized good golfers it's not like you know some unknown player from the live tour suddenly produced some extraordinary performance in a major but perhaps from kepka's perspective not being tested in that same intensity that you might face on the pga tour just because the live doesn't tour doesn't have that maybe you just feel that extra bit of nerves that little bit of extra rustiness situationally that you know john roms had a number of recent tournaments where he's it's been tight down the stretch and he's kind of had to go through that process and yes kepka won last week on the live tour in a fairly close contest but it's just not the same pressure because you got that weird team element and everything's everything's more relaxed as you spoke about from your experience (laughs) yeah for sure I, i definitely think that's part of it the you know even when it's a close competition, who are the other competitors? You know, a lot of more often than not, it's not going to be a top 10 player. Whereas in the PGA tour, it most likely is going to be another top 10 player. That's, you know, pushing for the final round with you. Yeah. And you just have to think, does he care anyway? Like, does he care if he wins the live event in Tucson or not? He's already got the massive paycheck that, team is doing well enough that he's going to pick up extra money over the course of the year. Like, so whether you win or finish third or finish eighth or finish ninth, like, do you ultimately care? Probably not. Whereas you have to care when you're in the masters. Like it's just, it's too significant to not, but it was a, you know, it, it was a little bit of a shame. We spoke going into it, obviously that the one thing we wanted was a close final round. And for 12, 13 holes on Sunday, you got that. But then it just became a procession for John Rahm. Like it became clear, oh, unless he collapses, and I mean, I mean more physically than anything else in these final three or four holes. Like there, he just has to finish at this point. Like it'd be, and it gets so. I've got a couple. Of, I know you have some Masters gripes. I've got a couple. Oof. I'm going to start with one, which is it's less of a Masters gripe. And this could piss off the golf community. One of the things that annoys me, I think amateur golfers should get prize money. I know that there's people be like, well, then that's, they should lose their amateur status and all that. But like, Goner, these aren't real amateurs, right? They are getting supplied equipment. They're getting deals. They're playing in college. They might have their NIL deals. Like, We're, we're not talking about true amateurs in any respect here. And... I think if you play in a tournament like this, you should be eligible to receive 
prize money. It's not like you're signing a contract. You know, I think you, to me, you maintain amateur status if you're not kind of signing consistent, you know, uh, true professional terms. So that's just with Sam Bennett's nice performance over the weekend. It was at one point looked like he was in the running to win it. I just feel like it's sort of stupid that he doesn't get to win any money from his good master's performance. Well, I guess the issue would be for college eligibility. But we got NIL deals. We got people making yeah, millions but of dollars but what a year. you don't have is you don't have college basketball players who, you know, go in the summer and go play in the European League for a couple hundred thousand and come back and play more college. You don't have that. But that's not feasible, right? So golf is kind of unique in that it allows this possibility of playing in some of the most prestigious professional events whilst being a college player. Like there's, I guess maybe the closest thing you could come to it is athletics, track and field events and stuff where you could be a collegiate athlete and be competing on the, you know, on the kind of and world scheme. But, and I think the same, you should be able to get, if you turn up to a track event and in the summer and win, you know, like if you go to the Olympics, it'd be like going to the Olympics almost and be like, well, we're not even going to give you your gold medal because that's worth money, right? Like that's, that would be, you'd no longer be an amateur if we give you that because that's, you could sell it. You know, I think that's, that's part of it where, I don't know, as I said, I, I mean, look, I'm not losing sleep over this, but it just kind of bothers me. No, I, I, I get it. I understand. What about a compromise where it gets put in a bank account and when he turns oh. professional, he gets the money? Yeah, that would be cool. Gets put in like an escrow for, in like our trust for him for yeah. a while. Yeah. Yeah, that would be fun. Yeah, there you go. That could be a perfect solution to it of like, okay, technically he doesn't get it now, but he, and if he never turns professional, he'll never get this money. There I don't know go. why he would He's never just, turn professional, but <laughs> just a purist just wants to rack up major wins. He'll just be like, I have guys, I'm working at McDonald's, but I also have $700 million waiting for me if I ever decide to get my card, but I'm, I'm not funny. doing it. Yeah. My biggest gripe, you know, we've talked about this a lot off podcast and it's been, I think, a gripe of many people on many platforms is the TV rights and just what they're airing and when they're airing it. I don't understand in today's age where everything is televised, how you do not have every shot of every player televised, like not, not even every shot of every player, but the full round televised in some capacity, whether it's the last four hours are on television, and if you want to watch the first three hours, you have to be some part of a subscription, whether that's to ESPN Plus or to Masters.com even. You know, if you told me you had to pay $10 and you could watch all the rounds the whole, the whole time from the first tee off to the last tee off versus being able to watch the last three hours of coverage on your television, I would pay the 10 bucks and do it, like whatever. But what's crazy is that they actually do film it. They just don't show it. Like that to me is even crazier. They are doing it because there was a point where they were showing coverage that they didn't ever air. 
So they have the cameras there and you're filming it, but they're just not showing it. It's ridiculous. And this is supposed to be like the, this is the the granddaddy of them all, uh, uh, you know, of golf. And they're not even going to show all of it when they have the ability to do so. It, it was mind boggling to me that for rounds, especially even still at rounds three and four, you had to watch either the featured groups, which was like always either Jordan Spieth or Tiger Woods, because that's what America's obsessed with. So you had to watch them and whoever they were playing with, or you could watch the Amon Corner holes, 14, 15, or 16. And I think they're the one where you could even watch holes like two, three, or four. But you couldn't just do one where you watched everybody. Like, come on, just play the whole damn coverage. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. And in particularly in this rain-delayed, weather-affected weekend tournament, you were then you were missing and the minor like you could have been missing a potentially masters winning round from somebody because you could you know had a number of players in the mix and you were missing a sizable chunk of their round so yeah it was it's strange but i mean look it it wasn't until 2001 2002 that they even showed the front nine at augusta so this is you know they just have this weird it's when they try and maintain this tradition they do it sometimes in in bizarre ways but what's i i don't get i don't get it why what yeah because they want people to come live like that doesn't make sense because it's so difficult to get a ticket you have to be in a lottery so it's not as if they're not selling out and i would actually respect that more if they'd once they opened like once you've decided okay we're going to show the front nine will be shown then just show it all because if there had been a little bit of mystique of like no cameras and no phones and stuff allowed and on top of it we don't record the front nine so you That's just crazy. it would be crazy but ima- but at least then it'd be like what does the front nine of augusta look like and the only way you could hear about it <laughs> is by people describing it i think it was stupid but i could at least get it there would just be this mystery but once it's like, oh, I know exactly what they're doing. I just can't see it because you have weird hours. And the fact that the thing that blows my mind is you have moments when there's live coverage. Like CBS is showing it. Sky Sports is showing it. But they can't actually show the golf. So you're just watching Nick Faldo and you know other people yeah. sit, in the, sit in a room talking live and the golf is happening you know a mile behind them somewhere but they can't show it to you well what was crazy too is you would be watching the featured groups thing you know like on friday or saturday and they'd say oh you know uh brooks kepka just made a nice eagle and he's moved four up we can't show you it but we can tell you it just happened and we saw it happen because we can see it but we can't show it to you like are you kidding me come on this is just some of the things the Masters does, I think, is just to be different and I, it's dumb. Yeah, no, 100%. Don't this, don't do not disagree with you. And I mean, like, the other thing too is, you know, we were talking about this as well. I think you and I, even though I was watching CBS and you were watching Sky, we were getting the exact same video footage. So the Masters must control the footage. Or someone, oh, yeah. well, right? Which is crazy because they're deciding who to even show. 
because there was a point where they kept showing Fred Couples, who was seven over. And I had to watch every shot Fred yeah. Couples took. Like, what the hell do I a, care? What, what, what am I watching to see if he's going to die at mid-putt? Is that what I'm looking for? Here's what bothered me with the Fred Couples thing. It's not live, right? Like when they're cutting to Fred Couples, it's happened 30 yeah. seconds to five minutes ago. So they know the outcome. Don't show me a Fred Couples. He's seven over par. Don't show me a Fred Couples birdie putt that he then misses and we watch him tap in. Like, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's not even, oh, maybe he will make it. You know he's not made it. So why show it to me? Why go, hey, you know, just so you, you must see here that Fred Couples missed a eight-foot birdie putt. you got to see it. And he's still seven under. And if he can somehow in these final three holes hit three consecutive holes in one, he still wouldn't be in the running to win the Masters. <laughs> like that's I didn't get it. You know, and I also made the comment that they like apparently they love Jordan Spieth and it so so happened Spieth ended up having an amazing round and it was worth showing. But there was a point where Spieth was 12 13 shots back and they're showing him like hit hit a, a second shot on a layup in a par 5 and it's like why are you showing me this? I don't need to see Jordan Spieth lay up on a par 5. Yeah. No, it's the players that they choose to cover relentlessly and the you know, like we discussed it, Victor Hovland, who is genuinely in contention, barely being shown. We were missing entire holes of Victor Hovland's and this was after he kind of made a charge towards the yeah. back end of his third round and was doing okay at the start of his fourth round, was three shots off the lead, yeah. and you're not instead you're watching Jordan Spieth. Yeah. And there was even a point where on one of the par fives, he had hit it into the bunker and then had to like just chip out like 30 yards. And then on the par five on his third shot, he took a like a wood and drove it to the green. And they were like, oh, he's going to have that for Eagle. Like, oh, he could move right back in. And then at least this is the American broadcast. And then about 30 seconds later, they were like, oh, wait, um, I think that wasn't his second shot. It was his third. Yes. I don't know why it was his third, but it was. <laughs> it's like, yeah, because you don't fucking show it. Because <laughs> yeah. instead, I'm watching. I'm watching Fred Couples tap in a double bogey. <laughs> yeah, now it, it's a slightly frustrating experience, but it was nice to see John Rom win. You know, I, I think he, he kind of came into this tournament right with the big three of Rom, Scheffler, McElroy. McElroy obviously was never in it. Missed the cut. Scheffler was never seriously in it and then john rom was always there or thereabouts kind of gives john rom the edge maybe in the discussion of who the best golfer in the world at the moment is it takes him to world number one in the rankings but i don't know how meaningful that necessarily is and kind of the like title belt concept but i'd say even though it's only his second major I think he did, as a result, become the first European to have won the U.S. Open in the Masters. That surprises me. Like, you just feel like there must be many more. But it seems like the Europeans either win the U.S. Open, like Rory McIlroy, or win the Masters, like Nick Faldo, but don't manage to do both. So puts Rahm in unique territory. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, good to see. And then hopefully we get... You know, some 
the thing that I hope now is you get a couple more majors where we get to see two of those big three kind of go toe to toe with each other. Cause you don't want to keep seeing like, Oh, Scheffler won this one. Rom missed the cut. McElroy was seven back. And then next one, McElroy won this one. Scheffler missed the cut. Rom was five back. You want to see it to really feel like a rivalry develops amongst at least two of them. We need to have them final pairing at some point, really going straight at it head to head. Yeah, that'd be cool. The last Masters fact I have is, I don't know if you saw the merchandise fact of what they sell at the Masters. Did you see this? I inter- No, I didn't see any anything relating to that. So they just redid uh the like clubhouse section where they sell all the masters related apparel it's like this brand new huge room now that they can sell so they'll do they did 70 million dollars in sales this weekend that uh, for the week sorry for the whole week so 10 million a day and they're open 10 hours a day, which means they were selling a million dollars worth of Masters Apparel an hour. That is crazy to think about how much merchandise they're going through. And one, how much they must have in stock for that week is crazy. And how overpriced most of the stuff probably is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's where they're smart, right? Because the only place you can buy Masters stuff is at the masters like they yep. don't sell anything online nope like that's that's where they are kind of intelligent but yeah i will say i mean i when i went to the Ryder cup too you just see like they just had a huge tent and they must have been churning out i mean i don't know what the turnover was there but it's probably somewhat comparable and yeah you just people just snapping up 150 euro 150 dollar polos you know that are just it's just a basic Nike polo with a badge stuck on it and people, I, I must have it. I must have it so that I can go and play around a golf and people know that I went to the masters because once they see that hat or that t-shirt or that polo or that, you know, windbreaker, they'll, they'll know I went to Augusta. Didn't you get a shirt from the Ryder cup, Eddie? <laughs> I did, but that's, it's different, right? Because no, no, no. But the, I mean, that's different because you can buy a Ryder cup shirt online. So that doesn't mean like someone sees you in a Ryder Cup shirt that doesn't, they don't necessarily instantly think you went to the Ryder Cup. But the Augusta thing, it's true. Whenever I've been around someone who has it, you do have to say to them like, oh, you've been to the Masters. Like it's, it does get people into awkward situations because I had one person who I asked and then it was like, no, I had a friend who went to the Masters. They bought this for me, which is still, I mean, it's cool, right? I guess, but it doesn't make it, you're setting yourself up for just disappointing the people who are seeing it. But then maybe moving away from the Masters and maybe back to social media. I don't know if you saw a little bit of NFL talk with the NFL draft not too far away. There's a little bit of social media heat in the direction of Kentucky quarterback Will Levis. Levis, not Levi's, Levis. Um, did you see any of this? He has two strange... No. Uh-oh. What's, food, what's he got? Food, food habits. Oh, okay. So he eats bananas without peeling the skins. So he literally just bites bananas. But, but does he actually eat the skin or he spits the skin out? No, no. He eats everything. He just eats the whole thing. Oh, Doesn't boy. peel it. Just, just 
And these two things, the bananas only came to light because he's recorded himself eating them. Like it's, so this is on his own social media where, and not as a prank. And uh, he also puts mayonnaise in his coffee. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I, I've and, heard of I've heard of mayo on watermelon, but mayo and coffee—that's just... and it's not like a little squirt. He puts a couple teaspoons of mayonnaise in his coffee, stirs it in. Well, I mean, you have the people who put butter in their coffee, but mayo it's is not... egg based. It's egg and oil based, and that's just a little weird. Yeah, I would have expected it to sort of separate more than it does. Yeah. And it doesn't. It it kind of stirs in when you see him do it. It's it's a and little what's lumpy. The reasoning? He just likes it. <laughs> do, do you need a reason? Yeah, has I, he tried I, I mean oat the, milk or something? <laughs> I mean this genuinely. And I'm not trying to say this for the like the dumb like first take discussion topic. Would you draft someone who puts mayonnaise in their coffee? Like, I don't think I would hire, if I interviewed someone for a job and I said to them, uh, do you want like coffee or tea or water? And they said, yeah, coffee, please. And then asked for some mayonnaise and proceeded to put mayonnaise in and stir it. I don't think they're getting that job. No matter how qualified or impressive they are in every other aspect I think I would instantly see that as such a huge red flag that I would assume there's more weird stuff to come. And same when you're talking about having a quarterback who's going to be the leader of your team, kind of drive the chemistry and the, you know, invite the, you know, that culture to think that that guy is also putting mayonnaise in his coffee. I don't think I would trust it. I mean, what's he scoring on the Wonderlick test? <laughs> Who knows? Might have, they might not have, they may have seen him put the mayonnaise in the coffee. They didn't even give him the Wonderlick test. They were like, we don't even have to bother with this. <laughs> I, I don't, I, I don't think I care. There could be a lot worse things that he could do that would stop me from uh, uh, drafting him. But uh, people are, athletes are weird, especially nowadays. I mean, I, I bet you, if you asked around, there are just as weird things going on in the NFL right now with, with athletes. I mean, look at Tom Brady. <laughs> I mean, his eating habits are almost just as crazy, and he's a goat. Maybe that's what you're getting. Maybe you need crazy eating habits. No, his, his are weird and difficult. And like he has the eating habits of a rich asshole who can make really selective decisions because they can afford any food that they want and they don't have to prepare themselves. Well, maybe Will Levis has the, the choice of a, of a poor asshole where he, he does, he has to eat the rind <laughs> of a banana because he can't afford two bananas and he has to use mayo because milk's too expensive. Maybe Here's that's the, thing the difference. Is, the banana bit I can overlook because I bet you there's some nutritional benefit. I don't think that's why he's doing it, but I bet you if someone would tell you actually the peel of a banana has a ton of nutrients in it and this actually is like kind of smart. Like I don't think that's why he's doing it, but 
No, I there definitely someone... is. I, I know for a fact there is because I know there's been studies that have taken the peel and like made it into a powder. Yeah. Because so, it's like high in antioxidants and stuff and fibers. Again, I don't think that's why he's doing it, but I can at least overlook that. Like, but there's not a benefit to putting mayonnaise in your coffee. Like mayonnaise isn't healthy to start with. Coffee isn't particularly healthy, right? So you're combining two things that you don't need. Well, let's let's not trash coffee. I'm not saying I'm not I'm not trashing it. I'm just saying you don't go, well, the cornerstone of a healthy diet is a cup of coffee. <laughs> you know? No, but you do say a cup of coffee with mayo. <laughs> yeah, that pushes it over the edge. But yeah, I, that's... I would like to know why. Like, does it I'm kind of almost interested to see what it tastes like. Does it make it smoother? Does it like, is it kind of like milk? Does it make it richer? Is it for the mouthfeel? Because of the oils? So he, he, he has gone on, he's gone, he's on record saying why this happened. And he said it started as, it was he and his girlfriend before a game on a Friday they got their coffees. There is no cream, no sugar, but just a bottle of mayonnaise. She made a joke saying, do you think people are supposed to put this in their coffee? And he said, maybe let's try it out. And then he liked it. Oh, the things we do for love. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it would be, it would be an issue for me. I would, as I said, I don't, I don't think I'm hiring that guy. Now, um, a little bit of other NBA talk, quickly, with the playoffs coming. And there's been a huge debate over the course of this season as to who the MVP would be. Uh, you know, there were, and some of it got a little bit controversial with some racial discussion with uh, Embiid versus Jokic and some accusations that some members of the media were racist for wanting to vote for Jokic as a white player over Embiid. Uh, neither of those players really commented on that discussion. However, Embiid recently was asked how he became such a reliable mid-range shooter and also has a pretty good shot from three-point range, unusual, certainly historically for a big man, and he said, so I'm chilling one night and I go on YouTube and I'm thinking about, I'm going to figure this shooting thing out. And I go to the search search box and I type in how to shoot three pointers. And I say, nah, how to shoot good form. I say, nah. And then a light bulb went off, man. He I says what? In, what? He says, nah. <laughs> no, that's what he or says. No. <laughs> it's literally nah is the verbatim quote. And then he said, then the light bulb went off, man. I typed in the magic words, white people shooting three-pointers. And now <laughs> I'm fine with that. We always talk about how, and he said, listen, I know it's a stereotype, but have you ever seen a normal 30-year-old white guy shoot a three-pointer? That, that elbow is tucked. The knees are bent. The follow-through is perfect. Always. You know, in America, there's always an older white guy wearing Everlast sweatshorts at the court. That guy, always a problem. His jumper is always wet. And I get it, but I would be interested 
it's one of those away one of those interesting moments right where you can say that and everyone kind of laughs it's a little bit funny if you at all reverse that with someone being like i searched for black people doing this asian people doing this and that's how i became good your career is over yeah very true not much more to comment there. <laughs> and there's good reason for that. I'm not trying to say, oh, why can't we say it too? I'm not, I'm not, uh, that's not my point. But it just is interesting that you can have an NBA player saying that and everyone just thinks amusing anecdote versus career ending comment. I mean, also though, what disrespect to a lot of black three pointers, three point shooters. Shooters. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean Reg, like, yeah. Reggie Miller, Steph Curry, you know, like these are two of the greatest of all time. Yeah, I mean, well, look, pro- probably the two greatest shooters of all time are Clay Thompson and Steph Curry. I mean, both mixed race, but yeah, you certainly not white guys. Uh, and, yeah, and then, yeah, there's a host of other. But uh, you get what he's saying. It's like when you watch March Madness and it's one of those things you always say, like down the stretch, a guy's getting fouled just on immediate take who do you want going to the foul line you probably want the scrawny white kid who's only there because he's you know shot a million free throws before versus the clearly more athletically gifted person who might be a better baseball player anyway i'm gonna not get myself canceled (laughs) wow we definitely might have to take away your twitter privileges (laughs) or we're gonna see a huge surge Yeah, on that, anything else from the world of sport? I know we got maybe a quick Ted Lasso catch-up to do from the most recent episode. Oh, there's a look of panic in your eyes. Have you not watched Ted Lasso? Oh, I did. I think I did. It was a while Uh, ago. Yeah, we're nearly a week old now. But anything else from sport that you want to discuss? Um. Not that I can think of. I know we don't talk about hockey, but Connor McDavid had 150 points. First time since Mario Lemieux in 95. So almost 30 years. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, Ted Lasso then. Guess we can spoiler alert. If you have not watched the most recent episode of Ted Lasso, what you are about to hear may spoil that episode if you intend on watching it in the future. Uh, we'll keep it pretty brief, I guess. It's not a good sign that I can't ever remember what the episode was really about. I'll give the quick rundown and then you can give. Okay. It was the episode that was all lined up for AFC Richmond against West Ham. Uh, you know, everyone dealing with their feelings going into this resentment coming back some feelings of guilt you know how would the bridges be would they be continued to be burnt would they be rebuilt and uh in the end the match did not go well for afc richmond a comically embarrassing defeat with unclear how many players sent off i think it was minimum three possibly four (laughs) just who knows yeah, it devolved into just a joke of a football match. And uh, and yeah, and seemingly the thing that bothered me a little bit about it, I'll, we don't have to go into but the fact that then afterwards 
it was like, uh oh, the season now is in peril. This is one match. They are in the top four in the Premier League as a newly promoted side. I don't think there would be too much cause for concern just on the basis of of one bad performance. Yeah. No, I agree. I I what I'm just not liking about this is I don't like the way they have Nate portrayed. There is no I, it's not, it's so unrealistic how in one scene he's spitting against the floor and then <laughs> ripping into Ted Lasso and how much he hates him and then two weeks later he genuinely feels like he wants to you know like apologize and and make amends like it's it's not that black like they're making it so drastic on both ends that this isn't a real human anymore he's like a he's like a cartoon yeah also it are west ham paying him because he had the whole thing with the car which i can get you don't instantly buy yourself a new car and they're plenty of like N'Golo Kante famously was driving an old car for ages as a Leicester and Chelsea player. So there's people who just don't care about cars and not something they're going to upgrade. So that I can overlook. But he's also still in this same dingy apartment. You know, when they cut to the scene of him like playing Sabutio, preparing for it, like maybe even living with his parents almost. This guy, even if he's a poorly paid Premier League manager... He's on a fairly big salary. Yeah, Ted Lasso's got a nice place. Well, kind of. Even Ted Lasso's apartment is a little... I mean, Ted Lasso's living in like a, I guess, a two-bedroom apartment because his son comes and stays with him. But like a very under... I think it's nice. Don't get me wrong. If If you or I were offered that apartment in Richmond, a nice area, yeah, that's not a cheap apartment. But that's like a normal person, nice apartment. Again, he's a Premier League manager, former college coach, head coach. So he's been earning good money for a while. You'd think he'd be in something a little bit, a little bit nicer. And here's another one I have. Why is he picking up the lunches for his staff? He's an absolute prick. Yeah, that's the that's again that's inconsistent. Apart from the fact that he is obsessed with impressing the girl at that restaurant, yeah, and he, and you can see it's building. I mean, this is the and it maybe we'll be wrong, but it's clearly building. I'm guessing towards them having some kind of relationship because she's like the guy. She's the person who it's implied sort of sees through the facade of the steely Premier League manager, you know, but also but found you know what's him behind that facade, Eddie. A prick, an absolute <laughs> asshole. <laughs> That's what I don't get. Because what they've shown you is in last year, his like when you went down into his raw emotions, he was a, he was an enormous asshole. Oh yeah, that's no, the person sh- he was. So like that's what I don't like about this is that they're now kind of heel turning to be like, no, he's actually he's a really like thoughtful, nice, caring person inside, but he's putting up this facade of being a jerk. It's like no, it's the opposite. In season two, when he broke down and he was as raw as you get, that emotion was not nice or kind. It was, I like, I absolutely hate and despise you. And I'm going to rip, I'm so vindictive, I'm going to rip a sign in half. 
Well, yeah, and try and make out with one of my colleagues' uh, girlfriends. Spit yeah. everywhere. Yeah. 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 You no, can't be a right. thoughtful, nice, caring person and spit on a mirror. Those two don't add up. But no, you're not. You're not wrong. And so, yeah, it's uh, it's true. They're gonna clearly. I mean, we are, unless they are gonna surprise us. It seems like we there are several inevitabilities we're building towards. One being Nate at some point returning to AFC Richmond. Like this, just feels like this is how the show has to move forward. The other being like Keely and Jamie Tart getting back together. That feels sort of inevitable. Oh, really? Because I had a different take. What was your take? I have a feeling Keely and that the her like boss or person who's investing in her. There was like a little connection there. Oh, you think this is, they're going to go lesbian? I don't know the... if they're going to do that, but I definitely felt an energy. Well, if they're <laughs> going to be in a relationship, it's going to be a lesbian one. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, it gets super complicated. And And look, I'm also going to say this. One of our criticisms, they, you know, they, they introduced this huge plot point of the gay teammate, the gay team member, previous episode. This episode, there is one moment when he made a comment about Zava being his or something, which was kind of a callback to the joke about him wanting to sleep with him or whatever, the, when they made the homophobic jokes. But aside from that, that plot line not progressed at all and it's just like this is the thing there's too many storylines going on simultaneously and i don't know if i care about any of them i don't know if i care that much about ted lasso and his family his sponge of a son his wife who seems like honestly a piece of shit like she (laughs) she's slept with their marriage counselor and just lost all interest in their marriage just because he moved away for a job for a while and neither and didn't she didn't want to move there i guess like well, no no they no they were already i think they were already separated they were i don't think they were initially yeah, separated. Yeah. i think they were no because i think they, they were, were in the marriage council thing. i think they were kind of already separated i don't think they were set i think they were not going through a good patch I thought the implication was this is part of the reason why I took the job was to give her distance, right? Wasn't Maybe, that what he but said? they, but they made the official separation during the course of the show because that was season one. That was like a moment when it was like, no, now my marriage is over. Yeah. So again, she doesn't come across as great to me. The, the kid, I mean, like, I'm not losing any sleep over that kid if I'm him. Like. <laughs> I would be happy to not have to engage in those cardboard conversations. <laughs> and then everything else, I don't really care about Keeley's business. Yeah, I this has care. been a stupid plot line. Like that other I, character they've introduced. I don't I don't the, the the only funny line from that is when Roy said it's nice to put a name to the hair. <laughs> That's been the only <laughs> worthwhile reason for having her there. You love that, that line. Joke. I love that That's joke. Too- Two podcasts, you've had to bring that joke up. Um, but yeah, no, there's just so many storylines. It just And it's just too many characters. And then there's characters who were significant before who kind of aren't anymore. I'm sure they will be again. But like Danny, just a passenger so far in 
in the series. And I know that part of it will be a, they're going to try and give everyone sufficient screen time that they come out of the like Ted Lasso experience having really boosted their career. And you can tell there's that sort of ensemble commitment to providing everyone with that chance to shine. I'm sure also part of it is certain members of that, of the show may have had as a result of the success, maybe more involved in other projects. And then that limits their availability for Ted Lasso. So there's probably the balance of like, oh, he's off making this TV show or this movie now. So we can't have as many storylines around him as he's not super available. But yeah, I don't know. It's just, I still, I like it. I'm not, again, it feels like we always have to say this. Like I don't hate the show, but if this was my first introduction to it, if season three is when I was starting, I'd be out. Yeah, it's it's definitely not as good as it was in season one, for sure, unfortunately. Um, and I think I agree with you. I think it's just there's trying to do too much in a 30-minute, 10-episode show. If you told me this was either an hour or it was a normal sitcom of 18 episodes, then I think, yeah, you have the ability to kind of string together a few episodes that are mainly on this character or that character and kind of go back and forth. But when it's only 10, 30 minute episodes, and it actually, it might even be eight because the first season was eight and then they did 10 the second season because they wanted two more. So eight to, let's say eight to 10, like that's not a lot of time, especially to be introducing new characters. That's crazy to me. Yeah. And the episodes are a bit, some of them are, they're weird lengths too. I think this one was like 45 minutes. That's, you know, you just get odd, odd moments of it. But yeah, it's, it's just a lot. And, and it, it does also make it hard to remember. I mean, as you just experienced, but kind of hard to remember some of the things that all of these people, like the only simple one to follow, only two simple ones, I guess, in a sense. It's like Jamie Tart's really easy to follow because he's got nothing else going on. He just football. Roy Kent. It's simple because it's football and then that one relationship. That's it. Seemingly his niece, she's gone. She got told the relationship was over with Keely and he doesn't take care of her anymore. She's out. She (laughs) wants nothing to do it anymore. Her bad bad breath has been taken elsewhere. But yeah, it's... uh, And then, but everyone else, you know, you got footballers with restaurants and all sorts of different... Everyone's got a, a side business going on. It's too complicated to follow. I do, as a final little combination of golf, though, and TV, I did see Scotty Scheffler interviewed. And uh, Scotty Scheffler claims to be the biggest office fan in the world. He took a test. He was pretty impressive in his office knowledge. So I will say, if we get, I know you are, you know, you probably put yourself in the running. You love the office. You love the quotes and the scenes. You think you can remember everything. If we get shot, Scotty Scheffler on the podcast, you will have to go head to head with him in a an office, an office trivia. Yeah, yeah. I think he might um, have you no beat. No problem. He was he pretty might. impressive. He might be one of the. He might be like, uh, um, like Matt Fitzpatrick, but without the journal, where he just he can track every shot in his head. And he can also track every office episode in his head. Yeah. But yeah, no, it was, it was fairly impressive. Yeah, there's a lot of people that say that, though. Like Billie Eilish, Eilish is another one that where she says she's like 
the world's renowned expert on the office. A lot of celebrities have that. So I'll go up against them. I don't care. Just don't give me any final season because that wasn't the office. It's got to be only Michael Scott office. Don't post Michael Scott me. Well, no, you can't limit it that way. Then you don't get no, to No, you can because it wasn't a show anymore. It, well. it wasn't the office after Michael Scott left. But uh, maybe, you know, we had that discussion the other day about which which was harder, the one for seven, the three perfect score in bowling and all that. One of the other common discussion points is how, like, how f- far away do you think if you could pick your distance for every hole at Augusta? It's fixed, though. So if you say 100 yards, you're starting every hole 100 yards out. How close would you have to get before you think you could win the Masters? Like if you took, like obviously, if you said I'm a foot away, you're probably you're winning the Masters, right? Like what's what's the furthest distance you could get before you think you don't have a chance of winning? What one? Twelve under. Twelve under, yeah. So you need to average. You let's say. Let's say you got to go four under every round to probably win it. Historically, if you can get sixteen under, you're winning almost every year. Like I don't know, fifty yards. <laughs> you think you'd win from fifty yards? Because I don't think. Yeah, with because how... especially on the par fives. On the par fives, that's giving me a at least an eagle opportunity. Well, yeah, it's giving you an eagle opportunity, but then think like those greens are so tough, right? So those greens are pretty tough. From fifty yards, you're gonna miss the green sometimes because you're right because that's just gonna happen. Oh, but if I play it right, I don't, I don't go, I don't go for the pin. <laughs> I go so to just like, like I'm like almost like lag, I'm lag putting, but like lag swinging. <laughs> yeah, but but you still then. With your, so say with your tactic, you're 50 yards out, and you're just going to put yourself in the heart of the green. Right in the middle of the green, every time. You're going to leave yourself a 40-foot putt on rapid greens. Yeah, tons hope of, to three-putt. So that gets you a birdie on a par five, which they're getting anyway on most of the par fives. So you're not winning that hole. Like you're, you're, There's no advantage. But that puts me four under. Yeah, well... Assuming you then par the rest of them, you, you sure you're going to par every par three from 50 yards out? I think for the par threes that I bogey, I can equal that with a birdie on a par four. I think 50, 50 yards. yards I think 50 yards is outrageously confident. I don't think it's that confident. You just have to have I gotta a be, short game. I got soft I, hands. <laughs> I got to be honest. I think I to be totally like confident I could win like life on the line. I'm putting my, I've got to be on the green to start with, I think. Oh, that's crazy. Out of all the, out of all of your predictions, this is, this is, this is too far the other way. Now you're trying to compensate. You've read the Twitter and you're like, Oh crap. People think I'm a big bullshitter. I'm going to throw out a scenario. I'm going to wait to see what Frank says, and I'm going to go the other way and make me seem really, really realistic to a fault. <laughs> I just – I wouldn't say this about every golf tournament, 
but the masters when you just see how quick those greens are how challenging those greens are i just think if i put myself 50 yards away and i'm putting myself on the green i'm gonna have moments gonna have i'm gonna have tons of moments where i try and chip on and the ball just rolls back to my feet i'm gonna get a bogey double bogey probably every round and then that means i'm not gonna win and so like i'll put it this way i'm not even if you put me on the green i know i'm gonna get a bogey sometimes just because of the challenge of some of those putts so like if you're telling me i could start on the green and i'm probably still getting a bogey occasionally i'm obviously not saying 10 feet away but 50 feet yeah 50 feet i'm winning 50 yards i don't think i'm winning i think you could win 50 yards wow the tough part would be can i place it anywhere i want for that 50 yards you're on the fair there are some whole okay but, but you don't like, get to you don't get to tactically you don't you don't get to like yeah, line I up to make it a little tougher because there are some holes where there is some danger yes no no, no. you don't get to like like a tee box is going to be constructed for you in that like a golf course designer in a sense is going to is going to make the hole playable okay then let me drop me. it to 45 yards <laughs> so like if there's water around yeah. the green you don't get to go well let me put myself 50 like i'm actually going to play it from 50 yards away but technically in i mean like, i did win our mini golf challenge so you know my short game is solid Yes, then that is how John Ryan warmed up for the Masters this year. Yeah, he went to a really fancy putt putt. Yeah, busy week, but good weekend. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess that's all we got. I'll talk to you later. See ya. Cheerio.